This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Honourable Senators, I have the honour to table the 32nd report of the Standing Senate Committee on Banking, Trade and Commerce, entitled Open Banking, What It Means for You, which deals with the Committee's examination of the benefits and challenges of open banking for Canadian financial consumers, with specific focus on the federal government's regulatory role. And I move that the report be placed on the orders of the day for consideration at the next sitting of the Senate. Open banking has been attracting considerable attention in recent months. The idea is to allow customers to easily share data held by their banks with third parties, including other financial institutions or fintech companies, who can then offer new data-driven services. Here's how open banking was recently described in the UK. Open banking aims to re-energise banking by making it easier for customers and small to medium-sized businesses to give access to their transaction data, compare accounts and access new products. So how does it work? Open banking allows you to give consent to regulated third-party providers to securely access your bank transaction history or to make payments. You could give consent to a regulated price comparison website to access your current account transaction history to find a better account or overdraft for you based on your actual spending. Or for businesses, you could give access to your business bank account transactions, which could make accounting easier or speed up the process of applying for a loan. Open banking could help you move, manage and make more of your money. You are always in control of what transaction information you choose to allow access to, and you can stop access to your data at any time. There is little doubt that the major banks recognize that open banking is on the way. For example, BMO Financial Group CEO Daryl White recently had the following to say on open banking and the issues that it raises. In terms of evolving needs and digital acceleration, can you talk to us a little bit about your views on open banking? Yeah, of course. I mean, first of all, I will say I think open banking is exciting and we're traveling in that direction. And I think the conversations that we're having in Canada about open banking are very productive. But I think as you look forward, there's some key principles that have to be in place in order for open banking to be successful. The first one's security. And if you don't have security and the confidence that the customer understands that security is there, nothing else will work. Another one is transparency. When we talk to customers about open banking, they really want to understand if I am to provide my data and my information, what am I getting in return for that? I think this is the hardest part of solving for open banking understanding what I expect to get back and delivering what you expect to get back in the transparency file is critical. And then the last one is control. If the customer doesn't have control over that transparency conversation in terms of making the decision, you get to see this, you don't get to see that, as opposed to having a blanket charter where everything is available to everybody all the time, the fear that I would submit is the customer will lose control and the system won't work. If we can figure out how to solve for security, transparency and control, we can have an open banking system in this country that could work very well, in my view. If that sounds like an incumbent bank CEO raising some warning signs, that's probably because it is. The large Canadian banks haven't actively encouraged open banking, and other countries have moved more aggressively towards new regulations to help facilitate it. That said, 
millions of Canadians are already using open banking type services, but may find themselves without effective protections. So what to do about it? The government has launched a study on open banking, but those results are still forthcoming. Moreover, the Standing Senate Committee on Banking, Trade and Commerce conducted its own study on the issue this spring, having released the report in late June. I was invited to appear before the committee to discuss regulatory concerns, particularly with respect to privacy and data protection. Given that it's a holiday week in Canada for Canada Day, this week's Law Bites podcast adopts a different approach, with excerpts from that appearance starting with my opening statement. The committee's study on open banking has been exceptionally interesting and insightful, candidly providing more context, nuance, and information than the Department of Finance's consultation on the issue. Yet the review has left me somewhat puzzled. Open banking is typically framed both before this committee by government consultation and in the media as a matter of if or sometimes when. In other words, sometimes the debate is whether we need it and others suggest that it's only a matter of time. However, I believe the record confirms that open banking is effectively already here. While the banks have largely not provided data portability to their customers, millions of Canadians already provide their banking data to third parties who frequently use screen scraping to gain access to the banking information. This is presumably provided with customer consent since they are the ones with the necessary login information. The screen scraping approach is widely recognized as risky given questions about the security of the sensitive data, including login information, the identity of third parties, and the absence of industry standards. The willingness to use these third parties, even in the face of the friction that exists without easy data portability, points to the real risk for government policy. In my view, the real risk lies in doing nothing, not doing something. The prospect of account aggregation, the use of AI, and the identification of alternative products and services may sometimes only come from a third-party provider. Canada needs to act and act quickly to facilitate a marketplace that responds to customer demands, fosters innovation, and addresses long-standing consumer frustrations with a banking system that invariably insists that trading cost competitiveness for stability is a virtue. If we adopt a consumer-centric perspective on the issue, we should recognize that consumers have demonstrated their interest in open banking but they've been placed at risk by banks that make it difficult to port their data and by the absence of associated policies and effective privacy safeguards. Now, looking through the transcript, I've heard several senators ask witnesses what can or should be done, and I'd like to offer three recommendations. First, Canada's private sector privacy law must be updated. Simply put, the law was drafted more than two decades ago and is no longer fit for purpose. There are important debates about the legal protections for data, but the immediate issue is that Canadians rely on PIPEDA for their statutory protections. This law does not have an effective enforcement mechanism, meaning there is limited recourse in the, in the event of a potential misuse, whether by the big banks or by a third-party provider. Moreover, privacy law standards that are increasingly common in other jurisdictions are simply absent from the Canadian landscape. In fact, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada has recently taken to reinterpreting the law as a means of expanding its scope and relevance. For example, just a couple of days ago, the OPC, the Privacy Comm Office of the Privacy Commissioner, released a new consultation that included its preliminary view that it now believes that cross-border 
data disclosures of personal information require prior consent. The proposed approach is a significant reversal from long-standing policy that relied on the accountability principle to ensure that organizations transferring personal information to third parties are the ones that are ultimately responsible for safeguarding that information. The proposed change in approach has enormous implications for e-commerce, data flows, and potentially open banking. It points yet again to the need for legislative review and reform of the law, rather than OPC guidelines that, if adopted, will likely end up being challenged in Canadian courts. Second, the government needs to mandate data portability for consumer and small business banking. The major banks may talk sweetly about their potential support for open banking, but it was only in 2017 the Canadian Bankers Association was issuing warnings about open banking risks to consumers and the economy as a whole. Third-party innovative services exist precisely because they offer products and services not offered by the big banks. The way to restore the safety of Canadian consumers who face real risks with screen scraping is to mandate that their data must be openly shared by the banks where the customer provides an informed consent to do so. There are undoubtedly security protocols and standards to be developed, but the starting point is regulated support for a consumer-focused system that gives consumers control by opening their data at their request. Third, as the committee identifies consumer protections and other safeguards, recognize that the difference between big banks and third-party financial providers will become increasingly blurry for many Canadians. That blurring already exists in other sectors. Think of telecom and incumbent providers who operate alongside third-party services such as Skype or WhatsApp that offer functionality that was once limited to incumbent providers. I believe the same will ultimately be true in banking as consumers come to rely on new service providers that offer their services alongside the big banks. That suggests that consumer protections and the identifications of risk should take a big picture perspective. In fact, just yesterday, the CBC reported that a report from the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada about aggressive sales tactics by the big banks underwent revisions after early drafts were provided to the government and the banking sector. The revisions included the removal of proposed consumer protections. In other words, we should not pretend that it is only new technologies and third parties that bring with them consumer risks. After my opening remarks, Senator Klein immediately asked about the state of Canadian privacy law. Good morning and uh, thank you for your attendance with us this morning. The uh, I was going to ask you about, uh, in, with re reflection on Australia and the uh, United Kingdom, and with regards to PEPIDA, and uh, you've kind of lobbed that out there. I, I don't think you're suggesting that PEPIDA should be uh, cast aside, but should be built on to add that, uh, put some teeth into it. And is it as is it as simple as that, or is it are there other elements missing that would? Uh, I have a, a second question to this, but I'll let you. Get answer to that. Yeah. Sure. So, oh no, I certainly wasn't suggesting that Pippita could be cast aside, but uh, I was trying to make the case that I think we're talking now about a two decades old law from when it was first drafted. I think it is widely regarded, if we compare it to what we find in other jurisdictions, notably, of course, the EU, as being inadequate. And, and I believe, frankly, that the Privacy Commissioner of Canada finds it inadequate at this point in time. It's, I, I, I'm not... I, I struggle with some of the interpretations we've seen out of the Privacy Commissioner's Office uh, over the last year or so, as I think they find themselves constrained by a law that's no longer fit for purpose. I just mentioned the change uh, that they announced literally about 48 hours ago, in, 
involving cross-border data transfers, but um, they adopted a somewhat similar approach with respect to the so-called right to be forgotten, um, reading in a right to de-index uh, into the law that is also currently now before the courts as it's disputed <clears throat> as to whether or not PIPA is there. And I think this simply reflects a law that doesn't meet the kinds of standards that we find in other places. And to the extent to which we want to talk about consumer safeguards in, a, in an open banking context where people are making their information or want to be have that, that ability to make their, their banking information available in a more frictionless way, uh, it is dependent upon ensuring effective privacy safeguards, and we don't have that right now. Okay. Thanks. I don't expect, but I assume that uh, PIPA 2.0 will find its way into some regulatory framework uh, be built on that basis. But We can hope. Um, PIPA included, uh, includes a mandatory five-year review. The most recent changes, some of which only took effect last year, were the result of the hearing back in 2006. Okay. Um, so if we contrast how long it took from the first set of hearings, literally 2006, 2007, to review, to take more than a decade from when the, those recommendations made their way into the legislative process, were passed regulatory frameworks, and then ultimately took effect, and contrast that with the speed at which other jurisdictions have moved on open banking, uh, I would suggest that there's a significant disconnect between mm -hmm. the speed with which we've moved on privacy safeguards uh, and the way in which this sector is moving. Okay. As the discussion continued, Senator Wetston asked why change had taken so long, particularly when it came to privacy reform. I must say that I think your call to action is uh, purposeful and important. Um, i just give you some examples of calls to action that took quite a bit of time. The financial crisis was one. Uh, we were well aware prior to the financial crisis that interconnection of derivatives over-the-counter derivatives were going to create a huge crisis globally. It took us a long time to act on it. We were well aware uh, that digital, digital currency was going to create problems and needed to be regulated. We still haven't done anything. There's some activity. The only reason I'm mentioning that, that your call to action here is we better get on with it and do something here because we're going to face another challenge somewhere and where, where might that be? And this committee has heard a lot about privacy and data and the importance of it. And we've heard before um, requests for updating uh, PIPEDA, giving the Privacy Commissioner more authority. So I think where I'm going with this is you've been involved in this area of privacy and PIPEDA for a number of years and, and familiar with your work. Um, do you have any views on why it is that we have not been able to amend PIPEDA or the privacy laws in the way that you suggest. We've heard witnesses in this yeah. here from I said and others. Do you have any thoughts about that? Sure, um, several. Um, I, th I think up until almost the last, let's say, 12 to 18 months, kind of post-Cambridge Analytica Facebook, it, it has been difficult to get uh, the public's attention in a, in a really significant way. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who are worried about their privacy, um, but having it rise to the level of what's seen as a true policy priority, it's tended to come further down the, down the list for successive governments. I don't think it's a partisan issue in any real way. So we've seen this both under conservative governments as well as under, under liberal governments. And so it's something that people talk about, but um, ha doesn't, doesn't rise to the level of as a top priority. And I was talking to, um, 
Hmong government official recently who was lamenting that having been new to government back several years ago, they didn't quite appreciate the that the, essentially the die is cast from a legislative perspective within the first 12 to 18 months, and it becomes increasingly difficult to get stuff done. Um, sort of brand new if you're going to be consulting much after that. So part of it has to be, I think, with our legislative calendar, part of it, and the challenge with getting legislation through, part of it is the issues associated with um, sort of recognizing it as an issue that the public deeply cares about. And part of it, frankly, is that this becomes, if we take a look at even some of the initiatives, this becomes a very heavily lobbied area where, on the one hand, it's, comfort it's, it's, it's comfortable to sit and talk about, yes, we need stronger privacy protections, and everybody will say that. And then you get into the details, and you get, with all respect to the Canadian Bankers Association, who now have decided that they're okay with open banking, even though about 18 months ago they thought the sky was falling, um, there is no doubt that whatever comes through, they will, they, and many of those similar kinds of groups, will slow walk whatever um, proposed changes come forward, uh, and then try to slow walk or delay the regulatory side of the process or seek exemptions. And so if you look at some of the specific privacy laws that we have around do not call legislation, around anti-spam legislation, we have exceptions for newspapers because they tried to make the case that freedom of speech and the freedom of the press was at stake if, they, if the Ottawa Sun couldn't call you at 7 o'clock at night. Um, we have exceptions for all the political parties, even though it's widely recognized that there are real issues with respect to how that information gets used. We have exceptions for any business that has a, had any kind of business contact with a customer for a period of time. Those get heavily lobbied, and we still get further delays. And even when we get things enacted, such as in the anti-spam legislation with a private right of action, we have now seen that delayed effectively permanently. Um, and so if there is frustration with our inability to move forward on this, it is that once it gets into the, essentially the sausage making of legislative, of making the legislation, um, the number of public and consumer voices sometimes get drowned out by uh, some of the large lobby groups who insist that either they need an exception or they need further review or further delay. Yeah, I think Senator Deacon was more or less heading in this direction. I mean, we do have to prepare a report, and I think... Um, Having these uh, these uh, meetings is, is very helpful um, from my perspective in trying to understand these issues. And when we get to the report stage, it, obviously privacy is a very important part of I know what this committee has been talking about. But um, I'd like to just um, refer very briefly, and maybe it's just a question of my observation. But um, Canada really likes to be second. Uh, we really enjoy watching somebody else do it and then observing it and saying, well, we're going to adopt our policy framework and we've observed what's been done and we've learned the mistakes and now we can put ours in place. Maybe that's my experience in the securities industry, Madam Chair, because that's certainly the case in Canada um, in that area. But having said that, if that is the framework that we live with, if that's the culture of the way in which we are going to proceed, because you do reference here the protocols and standards need to be developed. I mean, do you really or seriously think, given your experience, that our government, governments, would consider moving and doing something on screenscaping and privacy without having a good sense of what the framework would look like with respect to the standards and protocols that need to be put in place to ensure 
not just in the interoperability and other such things, but also to ensure that privacy protections are in place. Just asking for your opinion. Yeah. Um, I guess I'd start by noting, I think it's often the case, you're right, that uh, we have a tendency to look elsewhere first uh, for proof of concept or for some assurance that we're not moving into, we're not making a mistake with the approach we take. I don't think that, I don't, I don't think we're unusual in that regard. I think that's true for um, a lot of middle power countries that struggle sometimes to to become the global standard on, on issues. And so you become a bit of a regulation taker as opposed to regulation maker. Uh, it isn't always the case, though. Um, so copyright would be a good example. And Senator Burnett was actively involved on the copyright file a um, number of years ago. And if we take a look at some of the reforms that we enacted in 2012, they actually were the first of their kind on some of those issues. So I don't think we are... Complete, we are wholly unable to take a lead here, but I think you're right that instinctively we move more cautiously. And I think that's likely to be the case in a banking sector where, and as I alluded to in my opening remarks, the, 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 the view that the stability of the system as being sort of the, the best feature that we have, in a sense, we didn't have the meltdown that we saw in other countries somehow is seen as preferable to an innovative sector with more choice. Mm -hmm. And if that's the view that we take, then, then I think you're quite right. It's unlikely that we're going to move rapidly here because ensuring stability, which of course has the effect of preserving the incumbent status of the large players, um, is going to end up being the policy priority ahead of the consumer benefits and innovative benefits that might come from a bit of disruption. Senator Marshall then invoked the issue of the day, a CBC report that reported that the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada report on aggressive sales tactics by big banks had undergone revisions after early drafts had been provided to the government and the banking sector. I thought that the most interesting part of your opening remarks focused on the uh, CBC report yesterday. Um, and the changes that were made to the, the draft report. Um, we've been focusing a lot on privacy and security, and I know that, I won't say some of us, but some people have a lot of confidence that government's going to look after our security and they're going to look after our privacy, and I'm sure some people probably think that the banks will, will do the same. So how confident are you? I mean, the Department of Finance now is embarking on this uh, open banking review, their co consultation. So how confident are you that, you know, we can rely on government and the big banks to look after us when you look at, you know, they're making changes to the report. Uh, it seems like they're not, they're not that interested in consumer protection. Could you just speak to that? Well, that was a that CBC report was a deeply troubling report. That's why it, I, that's why I raised was, it in, the, in, in my opening remarks. Yes, uh, and I think that there there is cause for concern that the consumer perspective on these issues gets lost. Not just in the, in the example that comes out of the CBC report, but frankly, and with uh, if we take a look at the committee that Department of Finance established for open banking, and I think there's a, by the looks of it some really exceptional people there. For me, it is rather stunning that. We talk about a consumer-centric approach on these issues, and there is not a single consumer advocate on that committee. Um, I struggle to understand how the government can maintain 
or the department can suggest that their concern that the concern of the of putting the consumer first or at the center in a sense of their data and their banking services and then establish a committee in which there are no consumer representatives so that suggests to me that I'm not wholly confident that we can can rely exclusively on the large banks and government to ensure that those consumer interests are represented in this country we've got some really good consumer groups including uh, the Public Interest Advocacy Center that you're going to hear from in the next panel, uh, they are woefully underfunded. They don't, they are not, we don't have a structure that ensures the groups that would at least speak to these issues have the resources to go up against uh, the major banks in this country. I mean, it's, it's not well, even close. I, I must say, you know, with our previous witnesses, I've always sort of been, uh, you know, not really convinced that the government and the banks are, are going to look after us. So when you uh, see a report like the one on CBC is sort of, uh, you know, I was shaky at, at the beginning, but now that makes it even worse. But but if we, I mean, we're going to proceed to open banking. We're, we're going down a road and there's going to be legislation, there's going to be rules and there's going to be policies and it's going to require certain things. So who's going to police it? I mean, because you put in all these rules, for example, on destruction of data, you say, okay, you can only use the data for certain purposes. How do we know that that organization is going to destroy that data? Like, who, who's going to police it? Who's going to monitor it? Well, PIPEDA, of course, establishes uh, a framework for enforcement. But as I mentioned off the top, um, it's pretty weak. So you, we've got, a, in theory, a privacy commissioner who has audit powers, uh, who has the ability to go into organizations and uh, ensure that they are complying with the law and the ability to respond to complaints. That said, complaints are dependent on consumers knowing that there has been wrongdoing taking place in many instances, and oftentimes they're, they're sheltered away from that or un, un, and unaware of what's actually taking place. Further, the commissioner does not have order-making power, so that the ability to actually enforce this is dependent not on the a commissioner's order, but rather on the commissioner issuing a finding, and then later if there's non-compliance going to a federal court, seeking a court order to ensure that it gets uh, gets enforced, that's not a very strong system. Yeah. And if we look at even the provinces that have order-making power, if we look at many other jurisdictions, there are, there's clear order-making power there. And then that still doesn't take into this next issue where, let's face it, many of the providers in this space will not be Canadian. And if we... Are, and if we say that we are only comfortable with Canadian-based innovation for open banking, it's not going to be all that open. We're just no. erecting yet another wall yeah. um, around the sector. And so assuming that some of the players will be foreign players, uh, that raises questions around the ability for Canadian authorities to enforce as against those players. Yeah. Now, the, the approach has long been that well, if you collect that data, you're accountable for it no matter where it goes. But now we seem to have the privacy commissioner hinting that perhaps that isn't all it's uh, cracked up to be. That's right. Yeah. So I, I know open banking is coming, but I do think the consumers are vulnerable. And, and nobody, nobody has yet provided any reassurance that all of those safeguards are going to be in place. That's true. Let me just quickly reiterate the... One of the, the really the core point I wanted to make off the top, which is open banking isn't coming, it's here. And consumers are vulnerable right. because yeah. there are millions yeah. of them that are already using these services and yeah. are using a riskier system yes. to be able to yeah. participate in those services yeah. 
because banks have been um, creating friction in terms of the ability to try to take that data and ensure it gets used in a more secure manner. Yeah. Toward the end of the hour, Senator Deakin returned to the opportunities and challenges for open banking in Canada with a clear focus on potential regulations that the committee might ultimately recommend. This has been uh, fascinating and, and very helpful for us right now. Uh, I want to just keep building off of uh, Senator Monsignor's, uh point because I, I think there's, there's an awful lot of opportunity for Canadians who are not currently served through traditional services to uh, get tailor-made products that could really help them a lot in their lives. Um, so that that changes how we um, perhaps look at this and and uh, the types of protections that need to be in place uh, because they could be, in many cases, more vulnerable Canadians uh, that, that currently are, are in rural and remote communities where they currently don't have access to traditional services. Um, and so that... Is there any specific guidance in that regard that you want to be, uh, again, we're trying to find those recommendations that we can make in the short term and, lo and the longer term, because, as, you know, as you've very well said, this is already happening. Canadians are unprotected, so we need, we need something that we can, you know, something needs to be done now, uh, very immediately. But I also, and over the longer term, to make sure that we're really clearly uh, protecting those Canadians who uh, may not be uh, as sophisticated in terms of their uh, financial literacy and and uh, and privacy awareness, uh, and I think that privacy awareness could include a whole generation. <laughs> but um, any advice specifically around that? Because I I think that's you know that's the tremendous opportunity of open banking or consumer directed banking, uh, but it's also you know there's a consumer risk there. Mm -hmm. So I guess a few things. First off, I think, and, and I, I believe the committee recognizes this, but I think it's important to recognize that open banking is a choice, a consumer choice, not a requirement. Um, and so we need to always be, if there's a caution, it's that as we move more and more towards these kinds of solutions, there is a concern that you may find that this becomes a mandate that Taking, using some of these kinds of services, even the ones, say, offered by the large banks, becomes a mandated process. I mean, think, for example, of e-billing as, as a good example of that, where you started, we've seen businesses effective, prior to some legislation, effectively require um, e-billing. And whether or not that's fair in an environment where we still don't have universal access or some people simply feel more comfortable or at ease with dealing with paper-based bills um, strikes me as, as a cautionary tale for how what starts out as an option can ultimately become a requirement. Um, I was at first a little surprised to see the CRTC appear before this committee as part of the study, but the issue around universal access is an important one, especially when it comes to some of the rural, rural Canadians and their use of these kinds of services. And so I think that was an important piece to, to, build, to build into this and, so, and highlights yet again why our failure to ensure universal affordable access to communication services mm -hmm. um, is, is a monumental one that we are paying the price for now and will continue to pay the price until we get, get this solved, which mm -hmm. now we're told will be 2030, but is taking way, way, has taken way, way too long. Um, I do think that, so, so those, those, so basically it starts with, with kind of access and, and no, no, firm requirement to mm -hmm. use any of these sorts of things. I think 
the in terms of further recommendations, I think it was Wealth Simple that talked about some of their their services, or one what was one of the providers that talked about even just the small rounding up as a mechanism mm-hmm. to bring people in, which is I think a really nice example of how we're not talking about the rich in those contexts. Mm-hmm. We're actually talking about people who may be introduced to some of these kinds of services. That requires education. It requires plain plain language disclosures. It requires positive opt-in to these kinds of systems. So it's not one based on, well, we're going to presume that based on the fact that you did this or that, that you're comfortable with all these different kinds of uses of your information. So we need to try to be much more upfront about these kinds of things and to ensure that people are very clear about it. And so education programs based either coming directly from the regulator, from the government as part of this, but also I think um, from the sector itself. One of the values of these kinds of providers, and this is sort of where the, the kind of the glass half full view of this, is that for many people, you've got to convince them to take a pretty big leap, right? I mean, there's millions of Canadians have decided they're willing to give their login information to their bank. Um, I'm, a st- I'm still myself personally surprised that many people are willing to do that. But clearly, people are really desperate for some of these kinds of services. I think that speaks at least in part to services that have had to explain the value proposition that they bring to the table. I mean, no one's just saying, well, sure, I'll give you my login information to my bank. So the companies have taken the time to say, here's the kinds of things that we are able to provide to you that you're not getting right now. Uh, And in fact, it's so worthwhile that we even think you ought to provide us with your law, your ba- your personal banking information, but here's what we're going to do to safeguard it. I'd feel better if we had clear safeguards around that and laws that would enforce as against misuse of that. But injecting that the innovation and new competition comes that comes into the marketplace, I think also brings with it new levels of education and benefits associated with financial literacy because those businesses don't come with kind of baked in century or more of name of existing on just about every street corner in the country, or at least at least in urban areas. They've got to introduce themselves to the marketplace, demonstrate their value proposition, and educate a whole populace about why someone should entrust them and the benefits that they provide. And so I actually think that opening the door to this kind of innovation also holds the promise of better financial literacy and awareness in the marketplace, in part because the market requires it in order for any level of success for these services. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.